Ruth, a refugee's story of redemption. I don't know if you've seen the artwork. Can we get the guys on presentation? Oh, there it is. That, um, that artwork is great. I love it. That's a cool collaboration between Sally Conwell and Rachel Curl. So well done, guys. Good, good stuff. The thing I really love about that, you can't really see the detail on the screen behind me in high res, but if you, if you look at it on the computer when you get home, the thing I love about those eyes is what I see in those eyes is a mixture of both despair but also determination, of both hurt but also hope. And I think it's a beautiful picture of what we see in the book of Ruth. This is a love story. And so I'm sorry for the fellas here who you thought you were going to come to church and you weren't expecting to come and be told about a romantic comedy. And it is a bit of a comedy, to be honest. There's a lot of irony involved with this story. But this is a love story. And so the ladies here might particularly love the next five weeks as we begin to think about boy meeting girl. And, but it's a story that's filled with grief, a story that is filled with hurt and pain and risk, but also kindness and God's hidden hand of providence in all of that. And it's a story about, ultimately, about redemption that points us forward to the redemption that we've received in Jesus at the cross. This is a story of how God is at work in the lives of ordinary people to achieve his glorious and grand purposes in life. That he is in complete control in all circumstances, even and often through our pain and our mess and our brokenness. And so I'm really excited about this story. I feel like we need to pray, ask that God would help us sit humbly under his word and minister to us, particularly those of you who are here this morning that may be hurting or broken or have circumstances in your life that you are pleading with God to redeem. So we do that now. Pray with me, church. God, we thank you that you are the God who is on about redeeming people. And we pray this morning as we come and we sit humbly under your word. We ask that you might speak to us by your spirit, that you would transform us by your grace. I pray for people here this morning, Father, who are hurting, who need to hear what you are saying to them this morning. I pray for the rest of us who will walk through seasons of heartbreak and brokenness, that you might prepare us for what it looks like to walk through that season well. And God, we thank you that you are the God who remains close, near, and present. And so we pray that would be true right now as we come before you in your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. Well, we're going, to lead, uh, we're going to read, I'm just going to read and pause and we're going to unpack a bit of Ruth. But if you've got your Bible there, go to Ruth chapter 1 and the very first verse. And we're just going to read through all of chapter 1 this morning. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 says this, In the days when the judges ruled. And let me just pause there for a second. That is a historical time marker that the author of Ruth puts there. Not just to tell us that this is when these events took place, but to tell us that he is grounding these events in history. This isn't just a nice story or a parable. The people involved in these stories are intimately important in God's plan. And so he tells us that because he wants us to know that this is a true story about real people in their lives. The second reason he tells us that is because he wants us to know when this took place in the time of the judges. That means that this story is located sometime between Joshua 
and Samuel being anointed as king. In that period of time when the judges ruled, when there was no one rule over them, at the end of the book of Judges, you'll notice it says that there was no leader over the land and everyone did as they saw fit. It was a mess. You read the book of Judges and all you see is this repeating cycle of Israel falling in sin, God bringing them to their knees, they repent and they just repeat the cycle again and again and again. This is the time of history that this story takes place. In the time when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. And there is so much in these verses that I would love to talk about, but let me just quickly introduce you to the family that we see here. The father's name, Dad, his name is Elimelech, and his name means God is my king. Now, there's a lot of irony associated with the names in this book. And this one is ironic, particularly as we begin to see the choices that Elimelech makes does not necessarily reflect that God is his king, directing him, guiding him and leading him. Secondly, mum's name is Naomi and her name means pleasant. The two children, the two sons, Marlon and Kilion, have very interesting names. Marlon means sick. And Kilion means coming to an end or dying. Now, why would you call your children sick and dying? It's an interesting choice for name. I remember I used to teach teach scripture at a a school in the western suburbs of Sydney called Rudy Hill High. And there were heaps of interesting names. Lots of Islander kids, lots of Filipino kids. But the best name I came across was Bon Jovi. Now, that was his legit whole name, Bon Jovi, and then he had a Filipino name that really sounds South American, because I don't know why that is, but they all have these South American sounding surnames. Bon Jovi, and yet these parents call their name, their children, sick and dying. Ironic, but maybe true as we see the story unfold. So here is a family living in the city of Bethlehem, Which again is irony because Bethlehem means house of bread and there's no bread in Bethlehem. There is a famine in the city. And so Elimelech and Naomi make a decision. They make a choice to move their family, to look for greener pastures on the other side of the border of Israel for a better future for their children. And so they move. You know, my family moved to Australia in 1988. I grew up in South Africa during the time of apartheid. And my parents made a decision, made a choice to move our family for our sake, for the sake of myself and my brother, that we might have a better future, that we might grow up in a country that wasn't ripped apart by racism. And I'm super thankful that my parents moved us here. It was difficult, it was risky, it was hard to leave family behind, but I am so thankful for the opportunities that my parents have afforded me because of that decision to move countries. But there's a little more to it for this family, this Jewish-Israelite family, because Moab is an interesting choice to relocate to. It's not like you know, moving to Melbourne for a job and maybe better coffee and fashion or moving to Brisbane because the weather's nicer. This is a significant decision for 
an Israelite family to move to Moab because Moab and Israel have a very checkered and coloured history. In past history, Moab, the nation of Moab, finds its origin in the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. Lot's daughters get their father drunk and then sleep with him to fall pregnant with his children in order to fulfill their family line. And that is where the nation of Moab comes from. So they've got a reputation from the, from the word go. When Israel comes out of Egypt through, the, through the, uh, the wilderness into the promised land, they move through these nations and Moab, the king of Moab at that time, King Balak, is afraid of the nation of Israel. And so he tries to get a sage, a prophet, to curse and condemn them. It backfires on him. The prophet ends up blessing the nation of Israel. And the nation of Moab, in fact, is cursed. And God says, this nation, these people are not allowed to come into my temple. This is my judgment upon them for seeking to resist my people, resist my plans. In more recent history, the nation of Moab had subjected Israel and King Eglon, a big fat king, had subjected them cruelly and harshly. And if you want to read the story in Judges chapter 3, it's an amazing story where the nation of Israel cry out, God raises up a left-handed deliverer who takes a sword from his right thigh and plunges it into fat King Eglon's belly and the fat folds over the sword and he dies and God delivers his people. And so there's this tension that exists between Moab and Israel in the past, in more recent history. And so it's an interesting decision for this family to, to decide to uproot and move to Moab. You know, most people don't seek refuge in the fields of their enemies. And yet this family makes a decision, a choice to move. These are Jewish people who are deciding to move away from the promised land, away from God's people, and away from the temple of the Lord. But there's also another problem here, and the problem is that they're also running away from famine. Famine's a, an interesting decision to decide to uproot and move to another country because famine was one of the consequences for Israel rejecting God's covenant promises and goodness to his people. In Leviticus chapter six, uh, 26, verse 18, it says this. This is one of the consequences God says. If you reject me, if you reject my promises, this is what will happen. And if in spite of this you will not return to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain and your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. They're in the promised land. What's the promised land? The land that's flowing with milk and honey. They're in Bethlehem, the city of bread, and there is famine. Why? Well, chances are the people of the Lord have again in this spiral, this cycle of rejection, have turned their back on God and He has given them the consequences of their decisions, their choices. They hear he sent famine upon the land. And so the solution really is not to flee and find greener pastures elsewhere. The solution is for Israel to fall on their knees in repentance and plead that God would show his mercy and kindness to them again. And his promises 
that if his people return to him, that he will do that. He will show mercy and grace. That their crops will be abundant, that there will be fruit, that there will be food on the table. But this family makes a decision to move, to flee, instead of to repent. Mylon and Kilion also make choices and decisions for themselves, or at least maybe their parents are involved in that decision, because they decide, as they move to the nation of Moab, to take Moabite women as their wives. You'll notice it says there in verse 4, These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. This is something that Israel had been strictly forbidden to do. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says to his people, Do not intermarry with the nations around you because they will cause you to turn your heart's affection away from me and lead you astray to worship other gods who are not gods at all. They are in fact idols. And so God says, Do not intermarry with the nation, with the other nations around you. That's his instructions to his people. And yet this family makes a decision, makes a choice to take Moabite wives for their boys. You know what begins with a holiday turns into a very long stay for this people. In verse 1 it says they went to the land of Moab to sojourn, to journey, to travel. And the end of verse 2 it says they remained there, they stayed there. I think we've all got that friend, haven't we, who goes to Europe for a couple of months, meets someone and never comes back. This is what this family have done. They've journeyed, they've sojourned to Moab and then they've put down roots and they've stayed there. But the reality is, it doesn't go well for them. Verse 3, this is what happens. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, Oprah and Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years, and both Marlon and Kilion died, so that Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. You know, no one wants to attend the funeral of a family member, let alone a parent attending the funeral of their child or children. And Naomi attends three funerals for all of her family members. She buries her husband. And in time, she buries her two sons. I can't imagine the heartbreak for Naomi at that point. Naomi lives in a world where her current security comes from her husband and her future security comes from her sons. And all of that has gone. She's in a distant country. She's got no welfare. She's got no income. She's got no support. She's got no family around her. And she has got grief upon grief upon grief. She is lonely. She's poor. She's broken and she is empty. I wonder if you can put yourself in her shoes for a second. I feel her pain. This is unimaginable for this family. This was not their plan to move to another country to seek a better future, to seek greener pastures, to seek more opportunities for their sons. This is not the plan. Everything is shattered. Everything is gone for her. Now it's hard to know if the death of Elimelech and and 
Naomi's two sons is a direct result of God's judgment on this family. We're not really told there. The, the narrator of this story doesn't place a moral judgment on these events. He just tells us the facts of how they happened. It's hard to know. But I can't help but think that Naomi feels that that's the case. She feels that the Lord's hand has gone out heavy against her. And look, even if it is, even if this is the result of sinful actions, it doesn't make the pain any easier to bear for her. You know, earlier last year, um, some of you will know that I had a, a knee reconstruction. I had surgery last year because of an injury I sustained during a soccer game. And the, the day before that game of soccer, actually on the way to that game, I was in the car driving out to uh, Macquarie where this game was going to be played. And I was thinking to myself, how do I play soccer in a way that's gospel-centered? I'm playing with all of my schoolmates, most of whom don't know Jesus, don't love him. How can I play in a way that demonstrates that Jesus has made me different? And one of the things I've really always struggled with, particularly in competitive sport, is I have this over-realized sense of justice, that everything that happens that goes wrong in soccer is never my fault. It's always the referee's poor decision, or it's always the other player being a jerk. And so I really wrestle with just wanting to take justice into my own hands. And so as I'm driving, out and reflecting on this and I honestly feel a deep conviction of the spirit that says you don't need to take justice into your own hands on the soccer field because you have one who has justified you and so I'm preaching my gospel identity to myself I'm thinking yes I'm gonna walk away from poor decisions knowing that Jesus has justified me that this is just something insignificant and minor and I'm free to just let that injustice go Five minutes into the game, first challenge that happens, the guy that I'm marking just cleans me up from behind. Horrible tackle, should have been a yellow card, wasn't, was just a free kick. I was hurt, I got up and I thought, I'm going to stalk that guy, that is it. The next, this game is going to be rough, it's going to be hard and he's going to pay for what he did to me. And so every other challenge after that, I was in 120%, I was rushing in, shoulder ready to hit and it was, it was brutal. 25 minutes into the game, I go in a challenge, I kick the ball, put my foot down, his knee hits me there, break my LCL, completely rip it off the insertion point, get stretched off the field. Following Monday, I'm in at the specialist and he says, you've got no ligament there, you need surgery. I'm in hospital. What was supposed to be a one-night stint in hospital turned into three weeks in bed because of an infection, a hematoma and a bruise from my ankle to my butt cheek. And some of you saw me, and, and honestly, the reason that happened was because I made a choice to go against the very conviction that the Spirit had given me in the car on the way to the game. You know, not all of our choices, not all of our dumb choices result in consequences immediately. Not all of them result in consequences long term. Sometimes... The Lord does not discipline us. Sometimes he does. But the story of Naomi and Ruth is a story that reminds us that despite the choices and decisions we make, even choices of disobedience that go against God and his word, that even in those, God works for his glorious purposes. 
Because as we get to the end of this book, we're going to see how God redeems this story so beautifully and takes what is a probably a sinful, unwise decision by Naomi and Elimelech and uses that for his glorious purposes. Well, Naomi is in the fields of Moab and news comes to her. News comes that the Lord has returned to her people. Have a look at what it says in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. More choices face this family. What will Naomi do at this point? Will she go back? Will she be accepted? Will her daughters-in-law go with her? Will they stay? More choices, more decisions. Verse 7. So she sets out from the place where, where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And, she, and they said to her, No, we will not return with you to your we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night. And should bear sons. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Like, not even thank you. She just stopped talking. <laughs> now, I'm kind of somewhat baffled by Naomi's choices and response and words here. She blesses her daughters-in-law, calling upon the name of the Lord to show kindness to them, his covenant kindness to them, She wants God to be as kind to these daughters of hers as he has been to his people Israel. And then she encourages them to go back to their people and back to their gods. Doesn't make sense to me. That has to be the most unevangelistic strategy ever. Why does Naomi do that? Well, partly I think, you know, when your life is a mess, decisions are hard. And she doesn't really know what to do. She cares for her daughters-in-law. She loves them. She wants what's best for them. And she sees no future for two widowed Moabitesses living in the land of Israel. 
And so she wants what's best for them. And she's like, is it better that they go and maybe they've got enough of our God to go and worship him instead of Chemosh when, she, when they go back? Maybe she does this because she knows that if she returns to Israel with two widowed Moabite women, everyone will know that her son's intermarried. Everyone will think that that is the judgment of God on her life. It'll be a constant reminder of her poor decisions and choices. Maybe there's a little corner of selfishness in Naomi's heart there. And I think the other reason she does that is that she has no idea that God in his providence has reserved a relative, a kinsman redeemer, someone who might marry one of these young girls and provide for her family. She's got no idea of the future that God has for her. And so she pleads and encourages with her daughters-in-law to return. Orpah does what's expected, what's natural. But Ruth, on the other hand, does what is extraordinary. Against all hope, against all wisdom, Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. And the words that come out of Ruth's mouth have to be some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. She pledges herself to her mother-in-law with such commitment that these words are almost deeper than the vows that a married couple would make to each other. In fact, many people take these and use them as their wedding vows. Ruth declares that she will stay with Naomi no matter what. This is a love that clings, a love that binds I can't think of many other people in Scripture who have done what Ruth has done for Naomi. It exhibits wonderful courage, willingness to risk, and dare I say it, even faith. You notice what Ruth says to Naomi there in verse 17. She says, Naomi, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. What evidence does Ruth have to suggest that Naomi's God is good? That Naomi's God is going to look after their everything that, that Ruth has seen so far screams the exact opposite. What evidence does Ruth have? Well, maybe, maybe they'd had enough conversations around the dinner table. Maybe she'd heard the stories of God bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt. Maybe she'd heard of the stories of God's miraculous hand at work with his people. Maybe she'd seen enough to know that the God of Israel was far better to worship than the God of Moab, Chemosh, who demanded children be sacrificed to him. Maybe Ruth had heard enough to know. Maybe she just needed this tiniest amount of faith to pour herself out in trust and cling to her mother-in-law Naomi in love. Ruth makes a decision, a choice. She risks everything. And she aligns herself with Naomi, with Naomi's people, and ultimately with Naomi's God. And they head back to the town of Bethlehem. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred. It was buzzing because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? It's kind of like saying, after all these years, she's, her appearance has changed. The grief upon grief upon grief has wearied her. And there's this bewilderment. Has she come back? Is this Naomi? 
she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. You know, I wonder what you would say if you were in Naomi's shoes. I wonder what words would roll off your lips if those circumstances took place in your life. God, why? How could, how could you let this happen to me? I wonder as you, you hear what Naomi says, do you feel like she's crossed the line? Like, do you feel like she is blaspheming the name of the Lord, that she is blaming him for what's happened as a result of her poor choices? Maybe. But I kind of like Naomi here. Because you know what, at least she's honest. At least she doesn't pretend that everything's okay, but inside of her she's torn apart with bitterness. She's real, she's honest, she's raw, she's angry at God, she's bitter, and she lets people know, I'm angry, I'm bitter. And she's not the only person in Scripture that does that. Job gets there. Many of the psalmists get there. Some of them you even feel like, I feel like they crossed the line at this point. But let's be real for a sec. If you were Naomi's friend and she'd returned home for 10 years, after all that happened and she said to you, I, I feel bitter, I feel angry at God. Like, are you going to be Job's friends at that point and begin to correct her theology? Will you realize that grief is a journey and that maybe what Naomi needs at that point is not a correction but love? And maybe she needs to be reminded of some of the stories how God has worked in Israel's past. Her circumstances have left her bitter and angry towards God. But why, why is she angry at God? I want to suggest to you the only way you can be angry at God is if you believe, firstly, that God is real, and secondly, that God is in control of all the events of our lives. That's the only way you can be angry at God. And so Ruth gets those things. Sorry, Naomi gets those things. She gets that God is real. She gets that God is in control. And that's why she's angry. Because she thinks, how could God do this? How could God let this happen? That's a real wrestle, isn't it? To know that God exists... And to know that God is all-powerful, but to also know that God lets things pass through his hand that are horrible and that completely break us. You know, Tash and I were there as a family a number of years ago. To that point of realizing those two things and feeling completely broken. We've been trying to have a child for some time and Tash had found out that she was pregnant and we went for the 12-week ultrasound and we were nervous and freaking out and we went and the obstetrician did the ultrasound and then came those devastating words, this pregnancy is inviable. 
just a clinical way of saying that you've lost your child. We were shattered. We got in the car, weeping, and I prayed. I can't even remember what I said. I don't even know if it was helpful. But there was one, two things that Tash and I knew at that point. God is real. God is in control. But our wrestle was, why God? Why, why did you have to let that happen? Why couldn't you have blessed us with that child? Why do we have to walk through this season of grief? Why? And you know, that has to be the greatest objection level to the Christian faith. And if I'm frankly honest with you, I don't have all the answers to that. We still don't feel that we have the clarity of why God allowed us to walk through that season. We feel like we've had snippets and windows into why that happened to us. And Tash in particular has felt that. But we don't know why. But we do know that God is there. And we do know that he's powerful. And so how do we reconcile that? Sometimes I think Christians try and reconcile that by making excuses for God. You know, we, we say things like, well, well, maybe, maybe God is powerful, but he's just not good. And maybe God lets evil, wicked things happen to his children. And that makes God evil himself. He's going to worship a God like that. Or then we might say something, well, well maybe God is good, and he cares for his children, but he's just not powerful. And all of these evil things that happen outside of his control and influence. And that makes God impotent. That makes God just one power and there's another power that is of equal power to him. Who would want to worship a God like that? You know what we found great comfort in was that God is in control. There's no comfort in a God who is impotent and out of control. Why, why pray to a God like that? He can't help you. It's out of his hands. But to know that God is there, to know that God is in control, there's deep, wonderful comfort in that. So how do we reconcile those two truths? And I don't think there's a helpful answer. There's mystery in that. But I want to say this. There's not, not, not everything that happens to us comes from God's hand but it comes through God's hand. That is to say, God stands differently behind good deeds as he does wicked deeds. This is the reason that Peter can say something like this in Acts chapter 4 when he is hauled before the Sanhedrin and he squarely lays the blame for the evil of murdering Jesus at the feet of the Sanhedrin. He says, this is the Christ whom you crucified. You are responsible for this. And then he goes on the very next sentence to say, yet yeah, this was God's plan. How does that work? God is not the origin of the wicked, evil deeds that those men did to murder Jesus. And yet God still allowed that wicked, evil thing to happen. But you know what? He did it to achieve his glorious purposes. And sometimes God makes it known what he's doing. And sometimes he doesn't. Now I realize that that's not a particularly satisfying answer. But I do believe it's the best. 
I do believe that there's not another worldview that offers a more satisfying answer to the problem of pain, evil, and wickedness than that. And in a second, I want to demonstrate to you even greater hope that comes in the gospel. But I believe that's why Naomi can say, the Lord has testified against me. The Lord has brought calamity upon me. Her theology is spot on. It's just that her heart is full of anger and bitterness and she hasn't gone far enough down the journey towards healing and wholeness just yet. But I think Naomi's actually missed something. She's missed something because you you notice what she says there in verse 21. As she returns back, she says this to the town of Bethlehem, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Really? Really, Naomi? Empty? You've come back with nothing at all? Like these words roll off her lips and Ruth is standing right next to her. You see, sometimes we are so absorbed in our grief and and grief blinds us. It does. But sometimes we are so absorbed in our grief that we miss the evidences of God's grace and goodness and those, those tiny little slivers of light that break through the darkness. You know, I've seen so many people in the midst of grief and pain and suffering who have said things like, God has been so good to me. I heard that come out of Tasha's mouth the day we found out that she'd had a miscarriage. God has been good to us. I heard that come out of our sister Viv's mouth as I sat in her living room as she planned a funeral for her husband. I've heard that come out of people's mouths and that only is nurtured as people go deep into the character of God, his goodness, his sovereign control of all things. But grief has a way of blinding us. You see, in the end, Ruth had lost much. Ruth had lost a husband. Ruth had lost a father-in-law. Ruth had lost a brother-in-law. Ruth had been trying to fall pregnant for 10 years and no children. Ruth has her quota of grief, does she not? She's left her family, her culture, her country, her security... If anyone has come empty, it's Ruth. She has experienced the same heavy hand of the Lord, just in a different way to Naomi. And so here you see two women responding very differently to the same set of circumstances that God has laid out for them. Rick Warren has this very helpful saying, and it says, in the end, what happens to you is not nearly as important as what happens in you. What happens to you is not nearly as important as what happens in you. Now, that's not just a a fancy saying. This is coming from the lips of a man who just two years ago buried his own son who committed suicide after a long battle with depression. He, He gets this. What happens to you is not nearly as important as what happens in you, the work that God is doing in you. You see, whatever happens to us, whatever quota of suffering and pain we walk through, it will always, always drive us in one of two directions. It will either make us bitter or it will make us better. Or sometimes we start bitter and then we get to better. What happens to you is not nearly as important as what happens in you. 
You know, bitterness really is detained anger. Anger that hasn't been released and let go. And the root of bitterness is a false understanding and belief about God. Because in the end, what bitterness and anger towards God says is this, that that we think that because of the good things that we have done, because of our righteousness, because we are a part of a church, because we serve in a ministry, because we do all these things, that therefore God is in our debt, He owes us, and then when bad things happen to us, we're angry at Him because He hasn't given us what we deserve. The reality is that God is never in our debt. We don't earn his approval. The beauty of the gospel is he approves of us already. That we are loved. And when pain comes, that God has not failed to give us what we deserve. That we haven't failed to live up to this standard in order for God to bless us. But that maybe in the midst of that, God has something better for us than we can see in our current circumstance and situation. So what do we learn from Ruth and Naomi? A couple of quick things. We learn that dealing with pain is a journey. Naomi begins with bitter and angry. She doesn't end there. At the end of Ruth, she is full and joyful. She is pleasant again. But dealing with pain is a journey. And sometimes it's, it's better to be raw and real and angry than fake and, and hold up this pretense of piety while you're breaking up on the inside. But as we do that, we need to be careful. God is big enough. Yes, he can cope with our anger. It's okay to not be okay, but... God doesn't want us to stay there. He wants to move us on. He wants to move us forward. He wants to help us see that what he's working in us is more important than what has happened to us. We see from this story that suffering will either make us bitter or better. And we see that our story is not finished. So where we are at the end of chapter 1. Naomi cannot see any light at the end of the tunnel. But there's this little glimmer of hope. I don't know if you noticed there. It says that they arrived at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is a time of fresh hope. This is a time of joy. This is a time where God's people celebrate that he has blessed them and been abundantly good to them. Her story is not finished. And maybe the final thing we learn is that sometimes God empties us in order to fill us with something that is far better. It's interesting to think, would Naomi have left Moab if God had not emptied her? Maybe she would have been happy there. Maybe God needed to bring her to the end to completely empty her in order that he might fill her hand with something far better, far greater. And we're going to see at the end of Ruth that that far greater is that God would use her to bring into this world the Savior of the world, Jesus himself. You know, in the end, Jesus never promises to make your life comfortable and pain-free. But he does promise that that promise is reserved for glory. And he does promise to be with you. How precious that promise is for those who walk through pain. I'm with you. I'm there. And he does promise to work for our good. 
It's been said that suffering people like to be ministered to by those who have suffered themselves. And then there is no one better to minister to us than Jesus himself. He knows. Because Jesus both suffered with us and he suffered for us. Jesus is the man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering. He knows what it's like. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says this, Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself had suffered has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted Jesus knows he's walked through it he's experienced the abandonment of friends leaving him He was the one who cried at the cross, My God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? He was the one who knew betrayal. He was the one who knew pain. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering. He knows what it's like. But he not only suffered with us, he suffered for us. He is the one who died our death the death that our sins deserve. He is the propitiation for sin, the sacrifice for sin. He died for us to bring us forgiveness. He died for us to bring us healing. He died for us to bring us to God, to reconcile us, to redeem us. To those of you who are walking through a season of hurt and pain and grief, at this moment, whatever that looks like. And it doesn't have to be significant. And some of our family are walking through the valley right now. But it doesn't have to be significant for you. You feel it. You feel the pain and the hurt right now. I want you to, I want, I want you to know that God is there. Even if it feels like he's not, he's there. And I want to point you to a really helpful resource. There is a book written by Pastor John Piper called A Bitter Sweet Providence. It's a book of wonderful truths that walks through the story of Naomi. And he quotes a a hymn that William Cowper wrote. And I want to read you two of the verses from that hymn. It says this, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, by just looking at what's happening in our circumstances. But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Behind the hand that you have been dealt, behind the season that you are in right now, is a God who is using what is happening in your life for your good and his glory, even if we don't see it, even if we're not privileged to see the fruit of that. In Psalm 30 verse 5 it says, For God's anger is but for a moment, and his favour is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for a night, but joy comes with the morning. Your story is not over. Look for the evidences of God's grace. 
Look for those small glimmers of light, small as they may be. Cling to Jesus. He knows what it's like. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And for those of you who are here this morning who are grieving and hurting without God, I can't imagine how hard that is. There would be nothing greater for us to introduce you to the one who longs to lift and carry that burden of pain, walk with you through it, and show you that the ultimate light at the end of the tunnel is paradise where God will wipe every tear from your eye. There will be no more pain or mourning or sickness for the old order of things has passed away. We're going to have a time of prayer this morning, friends, and we want to minister to you this morning. For those of you who are hurting, we want to pray for you. Maybe you can't pray yourself. Maybe you just, it's too hard. You can't get words off your tongue. Maybe you need someone to pray for you. Be it a big situation, be it a small circumstance, we want to pray for you. We're going to have people up the back to the right and left who would love to pray for you. If you are hurting in any way, then please come for prayer. Let us pray for you. Let us remind you of God's promises, His goodness and His grace. We're going to respond in the Lord's Supper. There are four stations around the edges of the room with bread and grape juice. And we invite you to take that bread as a symbol of Jesus whose body was broken for you. He suffered for you. Dip it into the grape juice, eat it and remember the gospel. And then let us respond in worship. And the team have picked songs we hope are helpful for you this morning. Sometimes worship doesn't come out of a heart of joy, but out of a heart of brokenness. And wherever you are this morning, we hope that that this time would move you on the journey towards better and joy and wholeness and healing. So let's respond. I'm going to pray now. Please pray with me as I invite the band up. God, we come humbled that you would enter into the mess of our world, of our lives. That, Jesus, you would become familiar with our brokenness and our pain. And I pray for every single person here this morning who is hurting in whatever way. I thank you that you want us to be honest with you. I thank you that you have a purpose in this, even if we can't see it, for our good and for your glory. Help us to see the evidences of your grace, the small glimmers of hope, even if they're tiny. Lift our eyes from the blindness that grief causes. Thank you for making all things new. Thank you for your promise that you will wipe every tear from our eyes. We worship you, our God, this morning. For you are good and you are glorious. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.